Now, as we started last week, we'll continue this week. Before we get into our scripture reading, we'll do a responsive reading this week, just, uh, just one from Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. The question is concerning the second request in the Lord's Prayer. What does the second request mean? Let's pray before we turn to the scripture reading. Heavenly Father, now we open up your word, your word which is truth, and we get the privilege today of coming to be taught how to pray to you, our Father, by your natural Son, your true Son, the Lord Jesus. And even on this day, we are thankful for so many things that those who listen, who are unable to come, who even watch on the internet, that they too might find encouragement. Encouragement in the kingdom of God and all that it brings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be reading again this morning just a couple of short verses to begin, and then we'll be working through a number of other passages as we go along. So we'll read first from Luke 11, verses 1 and 2. Then we'll move over to Matthew 6, verse 9, and the first part of verse 10. And so begin in Luke 11, verses 1 and 2. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then very much the same thing from Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. This then, said Jesus, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. As we've been learning from the Lord himself what it is to pray and how it is that we should pray, As we've been learning that, I've been asking you to ask yourself the question, what is it that stands as sort of a barrier to prayer? What what is an obstacle that would keep you from praying, from praying regularly? And for some of us, as we looked at last week, what keeps us from prayer is a sense of, a, a dull sense, a drab, boring idea of who God is. And so hopefully, Lord willing, we dispensed with some of that last week, some of that foolishness last week, but then as we continue to answer that question for ourselves, what is it that keeps me from prayer? For some of us, the answer would be that our prayers are boring. We have rather narrow, we have small prayers, we might say manageable prayers, to give a a bit of a caricature. uh, Our prayers never extend beyond praying that Aunt Sally's cat would be cured. These are the the typical things that we have in our mind. We don't have big prayers. We have usually very small prayers. The, The scope of our prayer 
is rather narrow and bland. It rarely extends beyond our, our friends and our family. And because our, our prayers are narrow and bland, we offer them less often because we often find ourselves saying the same thing over and over and over, and eventually we find ourselves to be generally rather prayerless. But this is not how Jesus teaches us to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray big prayers. He teaches us to pray with confidence. He teaches us to pray with variety. Now, in, in a couple weeks, we'll see that local, local prayer, that small prayer, so to speak, is essential to prayer. But before we get to give us this day our daily bread, we have to get through your kingdom come. And in this we see that there is precedence, that God's kingdom takes precedence even over our bread. And your kingdom come is a very, very, very big prayer. Some of you may remember a TV show ran from 1995 to 1998, uh, kind of the, the, the junior high years for me, which is a time when this kind of show is particularly attractive. It's, it was a cartoon and it was an absurd cartoon, as most cartoons are. The name of the cartoon was Pinky and the Brain. And Pinky and the Brain was about uh, two mice. And one of them, Pinky, was rather kind of a, a dopey tag-along mouse. And the, the other one is Brain. And Brain was an evil, maniacal mouse dead set on taking over the world. And kind of the, the common tagline to the show is that Pinky would say, What are we going to do today, Brain? And Brain would say, what we do every day, Pinky, we're going to try to take over the world. Now part of the absurdity and the, and the fun of the show is, is that it was so absurd. You have this, this little mouse who's trying to take over the entirety of the world. And for all of his faults, nobody could accuse the Brain of having small ambitions. Now we ourselves are small. We're rather small people. We, you stand in the sanctuary and you feel dwarfed by the amount of space in here and the sanctuary is just part of the church building and the church building sits on just one corner in town and, and here the, the village isn't even particularly that large of a village and we reside in just one state of 50, a rather corrupt state, but just one state in 50 in a, a nation, a nation which takes up just part of a continent, just one continent on a mediocre-sized planet in a rather small solar system in just one galaxy in a, in a universe full of countless galaxies. We're very small. But Jesus teaches us that though we are very small, we are not to, small, we are not to pray small prayers. Our prayers are to be big prayers. Our prayer is that God's kingdom will come, that God's kingdom will spread across the, old, the whole earth. In fact, we are to pray that God's kingdom will remake not just this world, but the entire universe. As Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to pray that in the creation God will be all in all. These three little words, your kingdom come, are a, a request that that. God would cause a worldwide, even universal-wide recognition that He is King to the exclusion of all others. We pray that God would be seen as King. Now before we go farther, just a, a little bit of clarity. Some of you may be saying, well, isn't God already King? Doesn't He already rule everything? 
Well, yes, he does. We understand by his providence that God rules everything, that not even a hair falls from our heads apart from his will, which some of us will find encouraging, others of us will find more discouraging. But there is, there is nothing that happens in all of this creation that is not according to God's will. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says and teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. He's talking about the realized kingdom of God. That is the recognized kingdom of God. That is when we see the creation, that the creation brings itself in the kingdom of God into full submission to God. And that's not what we see in the creation, in the world around us, even not yet what we see fully in ourselves. Now God has always been king of his people. You go back to Eden, and it was God who gave the law, and Adam who was supposed to follow it. God said, name the animals. God said, take care of the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And it was incumbent on Adam to obey. And God was the king of his people at Mount Sinai. God gave the law, and the people were to obey the law. And God was king all throughout the history of his people. He was, he was king during the time of the judges and during the time of the kings. In fact, we see this very clearly when the, the people of Israel are afraid of the Philistines and they, they demand that Samuel, the, the last of the great judges, that Samuel give them a human king like all the nations around them. And Samuel is, is kind of bent out of shape. He says, Lord, they've rejected me. And God says, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as king. God was king. And of course, in the person of Jesus, we see that God comes personally in the flesh as king. And this is what we see very plainly in the great triumphal entry. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna and to the palm branches and to the coats being laid in the road, and he, he identifies himself as the king as he quotes from the prophet Zechariah, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. But what do all those things have in common? They all have in common that God's people rejected God as king. Adam ate the fruit. The people of Israel, even while Moses was up on the mountain, made the golden calf. David robbed Uriah of his life and his wife, Solomon made the idols, and of course Jew and Gentile alike conspired to kill the king of kings. Human beings have a long and storied history of rejecting God as their king. So what do we pray for? When we say your kingdom come, what are we asking? We're asking that all this rebellion and all of its consequences be undone. That everything we have subjected ourselves to, and everything we have subjected the creation itself to in our sin, that God would, by His grace, unravel every thread of sin and set everything right as it was meant to be from the beginning. And when we pray, Your kingdom come, I think we can break down the implications of this prayer into three broad categories which we'll come to in turn. The first of which is your kingdom come in the individual lives of your people. 
And this is what the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism teach. It's not very often you quote from Pinky and the Brain and the Westminster Catechism in the same sermon, but they say very much the same thing. The Heidelberg Catechism says that these three simple words mean rule us, rule us by your word and spirit. Westminster Larger Catechism says we, we pray that Christ would rule in our hearts here. In short, again, we, when we say your kingdom come, it's essentially that we say, and start with me. And start with me. J.I. Packer, again, great theologian and author, says that to pray your kingdom come is to pray with acknowledgement that God's kingdom coming almost certainly means for us self-denial and cross-bearing. There is a cost to praying your kingdom come. Because God's kingdom comes to the exclusion of our own and to the exclusion of our pride and our own selfish desires. And so when we come to God and we say, your kingdom come, we should mean your kingdom come. That we should say what we mean and we should mean what we say. You, you can't fool God in prayer. God is not fooled by false pretenses. He's not fooled by false humility. He's not fooled by empty requests. God knows our hearts. And so when we come to God and say, your kingdom come, we ought to mean your kingdom come regardless of its consequences for me and for my life. Really, truly, your kingdom come. And to pray your kingdom come means that we want to be subjects and citizens of that kingdom. And to be a citizen of that kingdom means to be marked out by the traits of that kingdom. And it means to have lives which are in general conformity, though not perfection, that are generally conformed to the law of God, to the rule of God, to the principles and priorities of God. It means to be humble and to be holy. It means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be defined by love as God is love. To be a citizen of the kingdom is to take an oath of loyalty to the kingdom, which involves a transformed life. And when, we, when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying along with the psalmist. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And in Psalm 143, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Oh, that my ways teach me to do your will. These are prayers that God's kingdom would manifest itself in us. Paul prays for the Ephesians, something very similar in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. He, he wants the Ephesians to be wholehearted citizens of the kingdom of God. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does Paul pray for? 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And in being filled, that you will represent in your own person the kingdom of God to a watching world and even to yourself. Do do we pray this kind of prayer? Do we pray that we ourselves would be citizens of this kingdom? Do Do we pray like the psalmist prays, teach me to do your will, make me steadfast in keeping your statutes, fill me to the fullness with Christ so that I can be a loyal subject and citizen and heir to your kingdom. If we pray these kind of of radical, self-defining, transformational prayers, I expect that we would find prayer a little less dull and a little more exciting. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is that we are defined, we are defined by heaven's values. We have all kinds of allegiances in our lives, all different kinds of things that we give some sort of ourselves to, and, and we, we, I, th- I think we know the right answers. You say, what are your priorities? God, family, and country, right? And sometimes we don't really keep those things in order. We, we mend those around, or we add things into that. We say the right thing, but we don't necessarily do the right thing. But, but God says, very plainly, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, which means that our allegiance is to God above all things, and even if necessary, to the exclusion of all things. So our first part of praying your kingdom come is start with me. And the second thing that we pray then when we say your kingdom come is we say, as we read in the catechism, we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed and that God's kingdom would advance. There, there is what we call a zero-sum game between, between the Lord's kingdom, the church, and the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. It is a zero-sum game. There's no neutral ground. Right? If one side is winning, the other side is by definition losing. If one side is advancing, the other side is by definition retreating. There, there's no middle ground. It's a zero-sum game. If one side wins, the other side must Lose And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying, and may Satan's kingdom fall. We do want Satan's kingdom to fall, don't we? I mean, he, he's, the, he's the enemy of the people of God, and he has been ever since he, he snuck himself into the garden and tempted our first parents away. He has been the enemy of God, and he has been our enemy as well. And, and, and if, you can, if you can picture this, I, I, sometimes I'm hesitant to tell us to picture different things about God, but wouldn't you just like to see that old nasty serpent take a few divine punches in the mouth? Wouldn't you just like to see God pummel the devil even before our eyes and watch him retreat before the onslaught of the spirit and word fueled the church of God? Wouldn't you like to see that? So we pray for 
We pray that Satan would recede and that God would advance, that his darkness would give way to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we join our voices to the hope of the psalmist who says in Psalm 68 verse 1, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. How does the kingdom come? Well, the kingdom comes, as we saw first, when we subject ourselves willingly. John Calvin says, when we subject ourselves willingly to God. But the kingdom comes as well when others subject themselves willingly to God and declare Christ to be their king. And if we want, if we want the kingdom of God to grow, we need to pray that the kingdom will grow. Jesus tells us this very thing in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Jesus says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Laborers. The kingdom needs laborers. The kingdom needs men and women who will share the gospel. The kingdom needs men who will preach the gospel. Not like a sissy, not trying to make everybody happy. The kingdom needs men who will preach the gospel with boldness and with truth. The kingdom needs men and women who will disciple children. And the kingdom needs people who will go. Who will go. Maybe it means going across the street or next door. Maybe it means going, as they say, to Timbuktu. But when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that God will send people to bring the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached to the world. And when you pray, your kingdom come, and you pray that God will raise up laborers, you have to at least consider whether you are called to go. It's not fair just to pray that others might go. That others would leave home and family without at least thinking and considering and praying about whether you are called to go. To be used by God, whether down the street or around the world. When we pray, your kingdom come, we, we are saying that we want God's kingdom to come. That we want to see people subject themselves to Christ to begin to bear the fruits of His Spirit. When we say, Your kingdom come, we, we want God's kingdom to expand to every nation as He promises it will. We want, we want His kingdom of light to push back the darkness even to the, the very edges of the world if we may speak like that. And we want the kingdom to come to people who now are in darkness. Again, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. You're either for Christ or you're against Him. And the difference between being for Christ and against Him is the difference between living in eternity in the new creation with Christ and living for eternity in darkness without Him. We want people to come to Christ, to come into life. And Jesus says to Himself, I am the way. No one comes into the kingdom except through Christ. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the parable there's a master who throws this great feast. 
And he goes and he invites all the people you would expect someone to invite to a feast. And they all say no. They're too busy. They got this to do. And some of them just beat up his messengers and kill him. And then he sends, go, go pick up anybody else who will come. And so they go and they find all kinds of people. And those people are willing to come into his, come into his feast. And as the, as the master of the banquet goes around, he finds one person who's not wearing the wedding garment that one must be wearing to show that you were invited. And he says, what are you doing here, friend? And he kicks him out. Jesus ends the parable and says he goes out into the place where there is darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the garment that a person must wear to enter the kingdom? Well, the garment is the righteousness of Christ. One cannot come into the kingdom without Christ. And how will someone come into the kingdom if there is not someone to tell them of Christ? One of the encouraging things about praying with God's Son who is perfect in prayer, is that you know that when you pray with God's Son, the prayers you pray are pleasing to Him. And that God will accomplish what you ask. One of the highlights of the Scriptures, one of the greatest moments of kind of an aha moment in the Scriptures is when Jesus asks His disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say John the Baptist, or whatever. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's sort of like Peter won Jeopardy and the price is right and who wants to be a millionaire and wheel of fortune all at once. You you can almost imagine the divine confetti falling. Yes, you've gotten it right. And what's his reward? Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. As Christians, I think too often we, we talk about ourselves as if we're back on our heels retreating. The church never retreats. The church goes up to the gates of hell and knocks them down and drags sinners out into the light of Christ. And Jesus says that the darkness, that sin, that Satan will not prevail against his church. We have confidence. We pray your kingdom come, that God will indeed bring his kingdom. And then thirdly, when we pray your kingdom come, we, need, we mean let it come fully. Not just in me. Not just in the earth as it fills the earth. Bring it in its fullness. Purge all sin. Get rid of all rebellion and all of its effects. Make everything, as the Lord says in Revelation, make everything new. Just in the last week, I kind of had a little bit, as I'm preparing through this, I kind of had a a little bit of the reality of this slap me in the face. This week, I, I met with people with cancer. I discussed emergency plans in case some kind of disaster came to be. I rebuked sinners and grieved with sinners over their sin. I read details of a presidential debate between men and women, all of whom seem eagerly enthusiastic in their support of being able to murder children in the womb up to the very moment of birth. Watched riots in in a foreign land, and what was the cause of the riots? Somebody decided it'd be a good idea to shoot down a commercial airliner, killing over a hundred people. I read of another slaughter of innocent Christians in West Africa at the hands of 
Fulani Islamic militants. I contemplated the eternal peril of those who believe false gospels or no gospels. And then, of course, as all of us do, I stared my own sin in the face. Yuck. That isn't the ultimate understatement. I'm not really sure. But yuck. You just think, and that's just all in the course of seven days since the last time we sat here together. Don't you just want it to be over? And isn't it such a mess? If you could, if you could travel in time and bring your smartphone, if you could travel in time and bring your smartphone, wouldn't you just want to go back to Eden right before Adam's about to take the bite as he's watching his wife about to take the bite and smack him in the face? Of course, you and I are no different. This is not a condescending smack. This is a please spare yourself smack and scroll through the news and say, look what you're about to do. And wouldn't you like for Christ to come and undo everything Adam and each of us have done since. We want it all to end. And when we pray your kingdom come, we're saying, and may it all end. You know, Paul says, one of, these great, uh, one of these great inspired pictures, word pictures that we receive in the scriptures, Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know, the very first promise outside of Eden, the very first promise is that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and the seed of the woman is Christ. But Paul says that Christ will let your feet stomp on the head of the serpent as well. I, I went to a, a Keith and Kristen Getty uh, Christmas concert in the city a month ago, and it was an Irish Christmas, and, and they had Irish dancers. And i would never seen people move their, move their legs and their feet so quickly and in such rhythm in my entire life. And they danced, and they, had, well, they must have had some kind of metal on the bottom of their shoes, and click, 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 click it went. And I would just like to see someone have, have spikes on their Irish dancing shoes and just dance and dance and dance upon the head of the devil who has caused so much damage. And the Lord says, through the Apostle Paul, that Satan's head will be crushed under our feet. We want to see that. We want that to come. We want to come what's promised in Revelation 20. I would, I would highly commend to you, if you want to think about what you are praying when you pray your kingdom come, then go and read the last three or four chapters of Revelation and see what it looks like for the kingdom to come. Uh, for the kingdom of God to come. We, we want to see the devil and, and all of those with him who would attack the church and lead into sin. We want to see all of them thrown themselves into hell. You know, you know we have this misconception that, that hell is the place where the devil reigns. No, that, that's not the case. Hell is the place where God reigns in wrath and the devil goes there himself to be tormented. We, we want to see the freedom of the creation from all of this. In fact, we want to see all sin purged from creation. We want to see there be no more sinners. Not because we're not there, but because we're not sinners anymore. Because God has taken our sin away and replaced it with righteousness through Christ. And then, we want the fulfillment of this promise that is given in Revelation 21 to come true. Revelation 21.4, one of my favorite scriptures John says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wouldn't that be a great day? I I just imagine, this is not how it works, but I just imagine that all all the Christians who've ever lived from the very beginning of beginning of, of creation until now line up in a big line, and they come with crutches, they come in wheelchairs, they come crying and in grief and in pain, and they come one by one before the Savior who touches them, and they leave leaping and dancing and praising God. That's the end. That's when the kingdom comes. When we pray, your kingdom come, we say, wipe every tear, heal every disease, and raise the dead. Bring the kingdom in all of its fullness. Because in the kingdom, there is no other king. And there are no other nations. God reigns. God does whatever He pleases. And the nations come to Him. And when you get to that very end of Revelation, when the kingdom has come in its fullness, it's a a glorious picture. There's no more sun. There's no more moon. There's no more stars. Why? Because God is there and God is light. And when we come... When, the, when we come to the kingdom, and as John sees it, there's a, a river of life. And what do you see on both sides of the river but the tree of life? The tree of life. When Adam sinned and was booted out of the garden, there was a great guardian angel sent there to keep Adam from going back in and eating the tree of life. But Christ opens the way to the tree of eternal life again. And the kingdom is where death shall be no more. When the people of God live forever in perfection with God. When we pray, your kingdom come, we mean, start with me. Go to the ends of the earth. And then finish the job. That's not a dull prayer. And if your prayers are limited to Aunt Susie's cat's cold, then it's time to make them a lot bigger. And it's time to pray, your kingdom come and start with me and send the laborers and send Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for being bored with prayer and lead us to see the grandness of your kingdom and the importance of longing for it and asking for it in prayer. And Father, start with us. Give us humility and all the fruits of your Spirit. Make our citizenship in heaven apparent to those who are near to us. Father, spread your church throughout the world. Lead sinners to salvation, even lead them to salvation by the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands. Bring light into the darkest corners of our earth. Send laborers to reap the harvest to bring in the elect for every nation. And if you would have us to go, then send us. And Father, we long as well for the fullness of your kingdom. We long to see the Holy One come with a robe dipped in blood to strike down the nations which have for so long oppressed your church. We long to see the great enemy, the serpent, cast into the fires, and we long to have our bodies healed, our hearts cleansed, our tears wiped. And we long to have death itself be defeated.
never to rise again. So we pray for this. And we pray for it together in the great prayer that your son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.